Our passage this morning is going to be found in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And as before we go there, let me lead us in a word of prayer together. And just to kind of refocus, I, I just love the worship of exalting God. Heavenly Father, as, as the songs have sort of been fragrances, uh, hopefully they're a sweet smell and a sound to your ears. And, and that you, Lord, can look down upon your people here at Brea. Uh, with goodness and grace, and to show us, Lord, how magnificent you are. We sit and, and we wonder about the beauty of all of creation. And sometimes we get lost in the little things of our lives, and we get sort of uh, bogged down in, in the little details, and we forget that there's a grander picture, a grander plan. So help us, Lord, as we look into your word, that sometimes the plan is much bigger than what we could anticipate. And sometimes the, the direction that you call us may have uh, roadblocks, may have closed doors. But you always lead us into the place that you want us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage is actually going to be found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The question that I, I want to begin by asking you is this. Have you really had a big dream for something? Have you ever grown up sort of wanting to be something and someone? And maybe as a little child you had that dream of being uh, whatever profession that you want to be. Or maybe even having some dreams of, of traveling the world or, or, or conquering new adventures. Let's translate that into the Christian life. Have you ever dreamed something for God? Have you ever thought about what would bring God the most amount of glory? And maybe some of us who are Christians have grown up uh, that our desire is to serve our God with all our hearts, all our soul, all our mind. And we have this sort of spiritual ambition that we want to fulfill for the glory of God. And as followers of Christ, many of us have had these big dreams for God. We make plans and we go in a certain direction. We pray, we fast. And all of a sudden, boom, the door slams. Maybe there's a point in your life where your dreams are so big and you want to honor God that somehow God, instead of uh, releasing you to fulfill that, he closes a door. And, and, and he closes the door right in front of your face. Ever felt like that? I felt like that when I was about 22 years old. I had just graduated from uh, Talbot Seminary. And I was freshly developing uh, a sort of a, a ministry reputation. I, was a, I had been a youth pastor since I was uh, 17, 18 years old. And, and I had grown some, some really good uh, ministries among uh, second generation Asian Americans. Uh, one of my youth group members actually went and, and hit big time even in, in, the, in the secular music field in Korea. And they, they were sort of the early founders of a K-pop group. And I was doing all these great things in ministry. I was uh, starting uh, ministries. I had this one ministry in which I would gather all these small churches that couldn't put on their own retreat. I would put these ministries together, and it was like, wow. I had, I had invited all these campus uh, college students to help uh, be leaders, and it was amazing. At the age of 22, 23, God had opened up some amazing doors. 
I was also privileged to speak at different conferences, and, and I was reaching out on, on how do you really minister to the next generation of, of Asian Americans, and I thought, man, this is what I want to do. And so I had the uh, sort of the ambition, the dream of starting a brand new church. And a a pastor friend of mine who was a first generation pastor approached me and said, what if we did a a new model of ministry? What if uh, I started sort of an ethnic church and you started an English church? And this is way back in in late 1980s, 1990s, before the whole generation uh, of of the next generation of Asian Americans were growing up. And he said, well, this is a great thing, so I'm going to do it with you. So I had this big dream of starting this new ministry, and it was going to be a brand new church in 1990s. Now, most of you probably were not even born in 1990. So think how how forward-looking that was. And I was so excited. And so I went out to all the college campuses. I approached all my friends, and I said, hey, we're going to start this new ministry. Would you want to come and join us? And so uh, all my friends at different levels said, oh, yeah, we want to be a part of it. And so it was a Saturday night. We had our first core group meeting. We had our first little worship service. And we had 12 people come. And I was just so excited because Jesus started with 12, so that's a good number. So I'm going to start with 12. And I, we're going we're gonna to take this. We're going to rock this. We're going to make this uh, a church for the next generation. And it's going to be awesome. And so I said, you guys, I want you to invite your friends. Next week, uh, invite as many people as you can. So the following week, uh, they uh, came. And, and this time... Uh, I was waiting outside to see sort of waves of people coming. And so we had six people. The following week, we had three people. And followed, after that, it was just my, my, myself. I was preaching to myself. And I asked God. I, I felt a little bit alone. I said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I felt all alone. And it was at that point in my life. And this is one of those things where you hit those moments where you have this big dream of wanting to do things for God, somehow God slammed the door in my face. And you know who I blamed? I didn't blame myself. I didn't blame my friends. I started blaming God. Because in my mind, I felt rejected by God. And I think for many of us who have grown up in the sort of Christian culture, uh, we've sort of had this sort of idea of what God should do for us, that we sometimes have this misunderstanding that God is there to serve us. How many of us ever feel rejected? I mean, I think rejection is one of those things that that all of us experience in life, whether it be in relationships. You know, one of the toughest things that that, that we deal with is relationships when when we are pursuing somebody, whether it's a a girl or a guy, and and, and we hit that that rejection. Or or maybe a career, as you're uh, approaching that career and you apply for these jobs, and every job you apply for comes back and says, I'm sorry, but, but you're not qualified or you're overly qualified. How many of us have been rejected even from school as you apply for those colleges? My two daughters are, are seniors in high school now, and they're in that application phase. And, and, and I ask them the question, so what are you going to apply for? And they give me all these lists of schools. But the first thing that they say is, well, I'm probably going to get rejected by all of them. That's sort of the mentality, isn't it? That there are times where we are pursuing something. It's a good thing. And yet somehow, instead of being accepted, we feel rejected. I think when it comes to the spiritual life, that's, that's even harder to sometimes deal with. 
because maybe we're forsaking a great job to pursue the things of God. Maybe we're going on the mission field or, or, or we're working on staff of a church. And sometimes we feel like, man, I'm giving this all up to you, God. And, and what are you giving me in return? And instead of getting what we hope, which is this idea of joy and fulfillment, that, that what all we face is rejection. Well, I want to set that up because I think that's maybe the feeling that David felt. See, we're approaching this series in the life of David, and David, in many ways, is, is sort of like all of us, isn't he? He's a, he's, a, he's a man whose heart is to pursue the things of God. And so we know the whole story, the arc of David, that David starts out as this little shepherd boy uh, minding his own business. He, he has a heart for God. So, he, you know, one of the things that we know of David, he was a, he was a musician. And so he would sing songs of worship, songs of praise, and he would tend to his father's flock, and he would kill bears and lions. Uh, eventually, God called him to be the next king of Israel. And so we see this whole arc of David going up and down, and there are times where David is a really good example of what it means to pursue God. And there are other times where David is a bad example. Well, in this particular story now, David has, has now become king. God has placed him in this role. Saul is dead. And now David is going to do something big for God. So what's the biggest thing that David can do? Well, in, in chapter 6, we see that there's uh, this uh, thing called the ark. Now, for those of you who ever watched the, uh, a movie called Indiana Jones, uh, you know that sort of the Ark of the Covenant story. It was the most important uh, sort of uh, a, a piece of, of worship. It symbolized God's presence. And so the ark, wherever the ark was, there was a sense in which God's presence was there. And so 60 years before David even became king, the ark of the covenant was uh, taken into battle by the Philistines. And the Philistines captured it. And eventually what ended up happening was that David uh, was able to restore, the, uh, get the ark back. And so in chapter 6, we see the story of David bringing the ark back. And, and it's interesting because wherever the ark was, there was the blessing. It was actually in one particular household. And that household was so blessed, David said, well, we need to bring it to Jerusalem. So David, David has this procession, and he brings it all the way to Jerusalem. And he places it under a tent. And then something's wrong. David says, okay, you know what? We need something more permanent than this. We need something that would house it because a tent in itself was, was weak. It was, it, when it rained, it got wet. The dust cover, covered the tent. And when the wind blew, people got nervous that the tent would fall over. And so David wanted to do what he could do to build a protection for this ark. So here is David's dream. I'm going to build a temple. A temple that would be so magnificent that would sort of underscore the presence of God. And his desire was to do this for the kingdom of God. When David desired that, it was a good dream. It was a good desire. But something happened along the way. Instead of being blessed by God in doing this, the door closed. And as a result, we see in chapter 7, kind of, this ark, <laughs> in a different sense, of how David deals with when God says to David, you're not the person. Because I think in many ways, as, as sort of the main point of this, is, is when you bring your hopes and dreams to God, understand that he may say no because he has bigger plans than you can ever imagine. 
Let me say that again. When you bring your hopes and dreams to God, understand that he may say no because he has even bigger plans than you have imagined. And oftentimes we as Christians often take that no from God as the final rejection. Or we take that no from God as sort of the end point. But here's the point that David is going to see here. That God has something bigger for David. And oftentimes we as Christians forget that God is, we're part of God's bigger story. And David has actually a bigger house to build. Not a house made out of stones and bricks, but a house that will be eternal. Because out of that house, out of the, the, the household of David will come the next savior of all the world. Jesus himself. And so it reminds us on a very practical level that it's good to dream. It's good to dream for the things of God. But we also have to hold our dreams lightly. And so here's the first thing that we see in this verse is this. Bring your hopes and dreams to the Lord with an open hand. In other words, when you are before the Lord, bring it with an open hand. So here's the first uh, part of the story, verse 1. After David had settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in the palace of cedar while the ark of the Lord remains in the tent. There was a disconnect. The most important thing for David at this point was, was the worship of God. The most important thing for David was that he was a man who was pursuing the heart of God. And so he wanted to protect God's glory. And, and he, here, David is living in this great palace. And the ark, the symbol of God's kingdom, symbol of God's glory, is in a tent. So he says, I got to do something about this. And then Nathan replied in verse 3, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. And that night, uh, the Lord uh, came to Nathan saying, now the first thing that I just want to highlight is this. That David had this hope, this dream, to do something to honor God. And to show his gratefulness and thankfulness to what God has done. If you sort of study David's life, it's amazing, isn't it, that God took sort of this runt of the litter to become this great king. Not only did he become great king, there were many things in David's life where he could have fallen into temptation. He, he, there was one point in which he dealt with this guy who was an uh, uh, obnoxious businessman named Nabal, and David wanted to kill him. Then, he, then his wife Abigail comes and says, David. God has a bigger plan for you. Every time David wants to make a mistake, God reminds David that there's a greater hope, a greater dream. And so we see in this particular story is that now David has fulfilled that dream to be king. And God has blessed Jerusalem. And, 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 and God is now, he, all he wants to do is to repay God. Now I think for many of us who are Christians, that's sort of the kind of our thing too, isn't it? That if you've really understood the the depth of your sin and you understood the grace that God has given you, our natural response is gratitude. I think think grace and gratitude go side by side because once you understand what God has done for you, then you understand that our natural response to what God has done because it is not by anything you have done, but it's all because of what he has done for you, that our natural response is one of thankfulness. David, if you think about it, had the right sort of resume to build God's kingdom or to build God's temple. Uh, He had the right concern. He had the right goal. He had the right heart. 
had the right process. He was, he, he, he was the guy that if you looked on a piece of paper, he was the man who pursued after God. He should be the one building. But then suddenly, God said, nah, David, you're not the guy. Well, we know that uh, from another passage uh, in Second uh, Chronicles, if you turn there into uh, chapter 28, uh, there's a little bit of a sort of a, a backstory to what is happening. In chapter 28, it says this, David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem. The officers over the tribes, the commanders, the divisions in the service to the king, the commanders of the thousands and, th uh, and, and commanders of hundreds and officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the sons and kings and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the brave warriors. And then in verse 2, it says, David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my brothers and my people. I had in my heart to build a house in the place of the rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord for the footstool of, the, of our God, and I made plans to build it. But notice this in verse 3. But God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. You know, I think David had a big dream. David's dream was actually a very good dream. And in many ways, he seemed like the right person, but there was something that David did that, that actually would not... That God did not look favor upon. And that David was, there are many times where David actually shed innocent blood. And because of that, it's sort of like Moses, because of one of his sins, that God would not let Moses into the promised land. The same thing with David. David wasn't the right person. But I think the thing that I want to encourage all of us is this. That I think one of the things that we as Christians have to do is we have to dream. And you know what somebody once said is that, it's not that we don't dream for God. It's that our dreams are too small when it comes to God. I like uh, Ephesians 3.20 where it says, Now to him who is immeasurably to do more than all we could hope or imagine, according to the power that is work in us. To him be the glory in the church through Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. One of the things that I feel that, that we have to do is that, that, that oftentimes our dreams are way too small. See, David's dream was actually too small. David thought that he would bring glory to God by just building this temple. But God said, I have a bigger dream for you. So here's the question that I want to ask you. What is the dream that you have that God has placed in your heart? Now, some of us have really never thought about it because we sort of separate dreaming for God with our own personal dreams. But what if your personal dreams and God's dreams are really kind of one and the same? That God has a purpose and plan for what you are supposed to be doing. And some of us say, well, I don't understand how I, being a, 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 you know, a teacher or being a nurse or being a doctor or being a business owner, have, has, has that as, as a purpose of God. Maybe God has something bigger than what you could ever hope or imagine. So here's the question, is what are you dreaming for the things of God? Uh, I was recently uh, having lunch with an attorney, and uh, he... he um, was sitting down, and we're talking about, you know, he's starting his own law practice. And, and he had actually gone to seminary. His father was a pastor, and now he was starting his own law practice. And the question he was asking me was, I think, a good question for any Christian is, is how does God want to use this particular profession for the kingdom and glory of God? The first question I want to ask you is this. How does what you're dreaming and God's dreaming align together?
C.S. Lewis said something very interesting about our desires and our dreams. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of the holiday by the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I think the problem with most of us is we dream too small. I remember when I was a young pastor, one of the uh, older uh, mentoring pastors said, do you have a BHAG? I go, what's a BHAG? He says, big, hairy, audacious goals. And I said, you know what? I think for me as Christians, I mean, as a, as a Christian, as a pastor, sometimes I dream very small. And I have to sit, stand back and say, God, what do you want that's bigger than what, what I could ever hope or imagine that only you can be um, glorified by? So the second part of the story is this, is this. Let God have authority to speak into your hopes and dreams. So as, as David is praying, David is saying to Nathan, Nathan, you know, I, this is what I want to do. And then Nathan comes back with an answer. And it's interesting how David's dream was, again, too small. He wanted to build this temple. But God's dream was not a temple, but actually a name that would house for, for the generations, you know, uh, that would go on forever. And so he says in verse 5, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house to dwell in? I have not dwelled in a house from the day I brought, brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Basically what God's saying is, is David, thank you for your dreams, but I have something bigger. I, I, I'm okay in dwell, uh, living in uh, tents. That doesn't bother me. And verse 7, whenever I moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to the shepherds, uh, my people of Israel, why have you not built me a house of seed? In other words, David's dream and God's dreams were not the same. God was not concerned about a temple. What he was concerned about was something even greater. And, and he's going to tell David what he, he's concerned about. Look at verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from the following of the, of the flock of the ruler over the people of Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. And I've cut off all your enemies before you. And now I will make your name great. Like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people of Israel. That will plant them so that they can have a home of their own. And no longer be disturbed. What God is saying this. in verse uh, uh, Later on in, in verse 11. The Lord declares to you. That the Lord himself will establish a house. But what God was concerned about was not necessarily for David to build a little house. But he wanted to build a bigger house. That would encompass all the people. And what this was, was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. See what David didn't realize was out of his legacy will come Jesus who will then become the one who would save the world. And, and, and the thing that I think is important is this. That whenever God has a dream bigger than us, our, our response to God oftentimes when, when our dreams get dashed is that we get either jealous or we get uh, angry or we get resentful or we want to go away from God. God says, look, when you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, then here's the promise of God that all these things would be added to you. David had a good dream. 
But he didn't have a great dream. Because the alternate dream of David will be the fulfillment of the prophecy that one day a savior will be born who will save the sins of of all mankind. And because of that prophecy, because of that, 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 uh, of Christ coming, all of us can be part of the household of God. Somebody once said, when you make plans, make your plans in pencil because God has a big eraser. Think about this in your life. How many times did you make a plan for God? Hold it loosely. Because if you hold it loosely, God could take that and actually redirect you into something better. So what is our response? When God shuts the door, our typical response is to run away from God. Our typical response is, is maybe like what I wanted to do. Actually, by the way, after uh, that little church plant didn't work after four weeks, you know what I decided to do? I go, forget God. I'm going to go into business school. <laughs> so I started looking at, at, at master's degree. I had already got an MDiv, and now I want to dump all that. And, and because God has somehow uh, didn't answer the prayer that I had for him, that I wanted to go the other way. How many of us are so foolish to go the other way? Because maybe uh, we prayed for a relationship with this person and God said no, or because we didn't get this job and God said no. Somehow God has failed us. But here's a perspective for you. Maybe what God wants you to do in place of sulking and complaining and, and whining, maybe what God wants you to do is counterintuitive. Maybe what God calls you to do is to worship. I love this last thing. Even shut doors are a time to respond in worship. You know what he does here? After David says, I will establish something bigger. In verse 13, he says, he is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, you're not going to be the one building it. That's a good dream. But I have somebody else whose purpose is to build that dream. But here's the thing. Your name is going to be bigger than any temple that will ever be built. Your house, verse 16, and your kingdom will endure forever and ever, and it will be established forever. Notice David's response in verse 18. Instead of David going God to God and saying, God, I, I still want to build that temple. God, David doesn't do that. You know what David says? He falls on his knees and says, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? The the first thing about worship is that he worships in humility. He recognizes that everything that has happened has not been because of him, but because of God's goodness and God's grace. And in verse 19 it says, And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant in this unusual way of dealing with a man, O sovereign Lord. What more can David say to you? For you, your servant, O sovereign Lord, for the sake of the word and according to your will, you have done great things and made it known to your servant. And then he begins to expound in worship in verse 22. How great are you, Lord, O sovereign Lord. There is none like you. There is no God but you. And here's the thing that David's teaching us. That when we hit life's disappointments, that rather than responding naturally to run away from God, what God calls us to do is to run toward him, to humbly acknowledge that you don't know everything. I remember when I was a young uh, uh, Christian, I, I was in college, and, and I thought, man, 
there was this one girl that I was really uh, infatuated by, and I, and I prayed so hard for this girl. I said, I, I want to marry this girl. This is the girl. I was like 19 years old, and I said, this is the girl of my dreams. And, and when I found that she uh, was dating somebody else, my whole dreams were dashed. And I thought to myself, God, I had this perfect plan for, <laughs> for my life. Why aren't you fulfilling my plan? And God said, because I have a better plan. And I think throughout my life, the thing that I've always come back to is this. That God has your interests at heart more than you do. That all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know what um, David does? David recognizes that he's not the one physically to build the temple. So you know what he does? He helps the next person who is going to be his son, Solomon. And Solomon's not in the picture yet. But he prepares all the material so that his son could succeed. You may not be the one that God uses to do that particular thing that you desire. But God may prepare you to be the one to help that other person succeed. Think about that. That God has a bigger story, a bigger chain of all these events. And you may be part of it. You may not be the part that you want to be. But God has a better part for you. And here's the story of my life. When you remain faithful to God's dream, the end of your life, you begin to realize something. You begin to say that God was right all along. You know, when I failed in that church plant... Uh, 22, 23 years old, I, I was going to get out of ministry. I was going to run away. And I did run away. As I was sitting in my room, I was thinking about applying to all these business schools. And I said, I'm going to get out of ministry. How can God treat me like this? I was having a pity party for myself. And nobody else would come except me. And I was sitting there and saying, God, you're so, so, such a mean God to do this to me. And one day, I was sitting in my bed. There was a, a catalog from another seminary. I graduated with a master's. It was, it was from Dallas Theological Seminary. And I picked it up, and I, I went through it. And there was a, a particular degree program called Master of Theology, Sacred Theology. And for some reason, I had never lived outside of California. God spoke to my heart and said, Ray, just go away. I want you to study more. And I remember um, saying this prayer, God, wherever you take me, I'll go. I was so defeated because my understanding of God was so narrow that I applied, I got accepted. And even little things begin to happen where I began to pray, God, if you're calling me there, how am I going to uh, uh, pay for this? And one day I get a check in the mail, anonymous check for like $1,000 from somebody I don't even know. God had been confirming. I loaded my car, my uh, Burgundy Honda Accord, 1990, <laughs> packed it up and drove all the way to Dallas Seminary. That year of Dallas Seminary changed my life. Because in that year, I sat in my room for the first three months just angry at God. And then I began to fall in love with who God was again. Next to me was a guy named DJ. DJ was a, uh, a, Chinese, uh, pastor, a Chinese young man who was preparing for seminary. His story was pretty amazing because he got saved as his parents were uh, owning a motel in Virginia. And his parents came, a, a truck driver came and shared the gospel with him. Well, after that, I went to California, became an intern 
uh, at EV Free Fullerton. And then after that, the Lord sent me to Dallas Seminary. And then after that, I mean, uh, to uh, Virginia, to Washington, D.C. And then God called me to plant a church again. This time I was totally different. God had enlarged my vision. Before I had a small little vision of planting a church for just my friends and family. Now God had called me to plant a church for all the nations. And as I was driving up uh, Virginia, I was driving up DuPont Circle and seeing all the different embassies. I says, I want a church that would represent the kingdom of God here on earth. That would represent all people. And I started this little church in my apartment with 11, 12 people. Actually, first church was 12 people. That didn't work, so I started with 11. I wasn't going to be that prideful. So with 11 people, we met, and that church began to grow. And guess who my first staff member was? It was this, my roommate named DJ. He came on board. And then another guy named Scott, uh, a white Canadian guy, joined, jumped on board. And in 1996... Ambassador Church was planted in Washington, D.C. Fast forward to today. It was because God took a dream that was good. In some ways, he had to crush it and reshape it to bring me to the point in which now we are celebrating this church. That really, it wasn't because of me. Actually, I, I was the one who, who, if I, in hindsight, God excelled, God succeeded, God extolled himself far more than what I could ever have imagined. And I just want to encourage you, in hindsight, in foresight, you may not see God's plan, but in hindsight, you begin to see that God has something bigger and better planned for you. So dream big, because those dreams, you have no idea where they may lead. I'm thankful for you. Because in many ways, you are the fulfillment of the dream that God has brought. So thank you.